Do you remember how Invisible Touch came together? No. Hugh Padgham, and this is my 80sography. Welcome to the fourth and final part of the Hugh Padgham interview covering the end of the 80s. Uh, we carry on where we left off the last one. A lot of interesting little projects at the end of the 80s, bookmarked by those two huge albums from Genesis and Phil Collins. Uh, so let's get straight to it, and I will see you at the end of 1989. Part four of the interview is here now. 1986. Anyway, enough of me trying to talk up press to play. I'm, go- I'm, on- I'm on to a loser here, I feel, so we'll move on. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, yeah, yeah, <laughs> okay. Um, so on to a much more successful album, which is Invisible Touch Genesis. Did you ever see or read uh, American Psycho? Yeah. Do you like Phil Collins? I've been a big Genesis fan ever since the release of their 1980 album, Duke. Before that, I really didn't understand any of their work. It was too artsy, too intellectual. It was on Duke where uh, Phil Collins' presence became more apparent. I think Invisible Touch is the group's undisputed masterpiece. It's an epic meditation on intangibility. What did you think when did you see it or did you read it first? No, no, I I, I read it because somebody said there's a whole chapter about you. Yeah, yeah. What was your take on it? Well, I, I'm I was extremely flattered, really. <laughs> Even though, I mean, it's a nutcase book, isn't it? It's oh, it's a horrible book. I don't think I'd ever want to read it again. No. No, There's some really so horrible bits the here. juxtaposition of being flattered by somebody who's obviously a huge Genesis fan, but being stuck in the middle of this, as as you say, the most awful book um, ever, is 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 a it's a very strange what's the word dichotomy? Yeah, yeah, that's the perfect word. I think yeah. I was very keen to meet him because I knew somebody in New York at the time who who knew Brett Easton Ellis. And um, sadly, I I never got to meet him. But um, it was bizarre, really, isn't it? Do you know if he ever reached out to Phil Collins or anybody from Genesis? And, I, and... Do you know, I don't, I don't know. I really don't know. It's a really good question to, to, to ask. Invisible Touch, which I think is a brilliant album. I mean, this album meant a lot to me because 86 for me was the year of Soapy to Gabriel and Invisible Touch. Yes. And I, I started buying all their albums before that. 
at yeah. this point. It's like the ultimate front-loaded LP. We got these four big singles on side one. But to me, side two is just as good. And I never understood the criticisms of Genesis, and especially this album, saying it's, oh, they've got all, gone all pop and they've gone all kind of just three-minute singles because you still have a nine-minute track. You've got an 11-minute track in two parts. You've got a five-minute instrumental. It's still got all those things you associate with classic Genesis as well as a, a poppy side to it. Was there an approach to making this album in terms of what you wanted it to be that is going to still have kind of the old and the new combined? Not really, because I think in, in they, they started off like they had done the last few albums with nothing, and it was just jam sessions in the, in, in the studio. I think we described this a little bit before, where they would just come in on, on day one, and some of these days I, I wasn't there, because they were basically just coming into the studio. Phil would get some pattern going on his whatever drum machine he had going at the time. Well, he had all of them, so he'd plug them all in. They'd be in the studio and they'd just have their amps and Phil would put his drum machine through an amp as well. And they would just jam all day and be recording everything on a cassette. And then they would take the cassette home and listen to the cassette. And then the next day they would come in and go, well, I like that bit. And gradually the songs would come together. And I mean, not, you know, some days there would be, say they're in there for a week, there would be a bit from Monday that might go with a bit from Thursday to, to make a song. And, and, and especially the, the, the long ones were all, you know, well, they were all made by bits, but the long ones like Domino yeah. and Tonight, Tonight, Tonight are all just all these bits all knitted together, but they just do it so well. And they know each other so well, or did know each other so well, because I guess the band doesn't exist anymore. But well, um, They're supposed to be touring again soon, aren't they? Oh, no, they are, yeah. Actually, yeah. no, they are. They've got back together again. And they'll make loads of money from it, because it will all be, you know, people in their 50s and 60s, all very happy to pay a couple of hundred quid a ticket and fill up Wembley or the O2, wherever they're playing for four nights. Ka-ching, ka-ching. Yeah, ka-ching. I just worry if the Genesis songs are a bit harder for him to sing than his solo stuff. Whether it might I, don't, be a bit... I don't know. I, w- I would imagine that it will be amazing. Well, I hope that Phil will be on form. I mean, I haven't seen Phil for a couple of years. I, I saw him at the last time he played when he had to replay the shows at, at um, the Albert Hall. And um, I thought it was amazing. And I took my daughter, who would have been 26, 27 at the time, and she thought it was one of the best shows she'd ever seen. And there will be the most fantastic production, light show. Yeah, uh, they put on a good show, wouldn't they? Presumably by Patrick Woodruff or whoever, you know, does their lighting stuff and Genesis it will just be it will be a great show I know it will be apparently they've done a a full film there's a big rehearsal studio near Wembley in London near Hangar Lane they can do a full-size stage with full-size production setup and they were rehearsing earlier before hopefully the tour was going to happen this spring and it hasn't been able to because of the coronavirus and so they've had to put it off till the autumn now but they did a full scale film with the whole production lights and everything and and filmed it 
if so if it never happens for some reason, they can just release that. Exactly. Yeah. You say they would jam and then songs would come for that. Would they have a period of time when they do all the jamming, like a week's worth of jamming, and then start holding songs? Or they do a bit of jamming, find a song, do a bit more jamming, find a song? Yeah. There was never, there was never any sort of methodology. It was just how it, how it ended up. But the, when, when we actually came to record the songs, they had put the parts together. So it, 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 the actual recording process wasn't haphazard at all. In other words, even tonight, 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 they had the structure of the song when I actually pressed the record button, if you see what I mean. So before that stage, before we actually started recording it, before the song had come together as a structured song, when they were doing was jamming and finding the songs, what was your part of the process? Because I, I guess because you weren't really producing at that point because there's nothing to produce because they're exactly. finding the songs. Which is why I said I wasn't always there. Okay, right. Yeah. So you bring you in and say, we've got a song now, let's come in and, and produce it and, and record the natural song. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So of course I never had anything to do with with um putting bits together saying this bit would go with that bit because you know they knew exactly what they were doing do you remember how invisible touch came together no <laughs> <laughs> so they just presented to you as a finished song yeah what about the key change for the choruses at the end was that oh well that yeah that i'm sure that was phil Every pop song should have a key change for the last well, chorus. Well, no, but you know what the saying is, is that if you're getting a bit bored of the song, just put a key change, <laughs> put a key change in. <laughs> so in some ways, it can be quite a derogatory term. <laughs> but I think it works. It works. Yeah, so. it does work in that song. It's crazy. Yeah. The Brazilian as well is one of my favourite instrumentals. I think it's a fantastic way to end the um, album. Yeah, any memories. Yeah. Any memories of that one? Not really. I just, I just, I, I loved making that record. I have to say, I just enjoyed every second of it. I loved the songs. I thought it was, you know, without being sort of big-headed, I sort of knew it was going to be good and successful. And I, I was really pleased with the sound of it. A few years ago, I went through a thing thinking. I didn't really like all the electronic drum sounds in it because I thought mm. it sounded a bit sort of 80s. Yeah. <laughs> but but now I think it it is what it is. You can't change um, you can't change it. And actually, when I listened to it the other day, knowing I was going to be talking to you, I thought, well, actually, I can I can quite like those. It's the Simmons drums, isn't it? I mean, I love... I like love... the intro to Invisible Touch. Yeah. Yeah, you go straight into it then, don't you? I, I, I got more of a problem with the Simmons drums than with the drum machines. And I, okay. think, I think there was a Lynn drum machine, there was emulator drum machine, there were various... We had them all. So, you know, we really, we, we, we had them all. And I think Phil was really good at, at programming them. It's just that Simmons drums were those pads, uh, yeah. which, which were played 
like real drums, except they were pads. So we, we what we did do that. Were they the hexagonal ones you used to get? Exactly. Or was it cool on top of the pops? Yeah, they were the yeah. hexagonal yeah. pads plugged into this little sort of rack that you had by your side, and that's where you could choo, 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 you know, bing, all these sort of sounds, you can fiddle with them. And then I thought they sounded a bit rubbish when when you, what's called direct inject them into the desk. So you came out of the actual electronics and put them straight into the, into the recording console. I never liked the sound of them like that at all. So what we ended up doing was putting them through PA speakers actually in the studio and then miking up the speakers or the room that they were in, which made them sound a little bit less electronic to me do you have a favorite track on the album um well i like the long songs actually they're my favorite songs i think my least favorite song is land of confusion Why? I don't know. It's just sort of, I don't know. I just, I, I, I really think the Tonight, Tonight, Tonight and Domino are just fantastic, classic Genesis long songs. Yeah. Up the Brazilian, throwing it all away and into deeper good ballads, really, aren't they? Yeah. And, and Invisible Touch is great. And so you've got to have one song that you don't like so much. We don't have to, but yeah, that's fair enough. Was that the one that had the... Um, Spitting the image there? puppets, yes. Morning, dear. Ah, hey, Nance, what a terrible dream. I am parched. Oh. That's better. I could use another one of those. That's one heck of a nurse. I think it was a great video, but it sort of made it a bit cheap to me okay maybe well, too, too jokey when it's a serious song yeah maybe yeah okay I, I i was a huge fan of the muppets spitting image i mean spitting image what am i saying <laughs> muppets, muppets. <laughs> a, a muppet video of land of confusion would have been good maybe they should have done a muppet video of um, domino hey eh? <laughs> animal would have some fun there in the middle section wouldn't he In terms of both specifically for Invisible Touch and generally, when, when you're compiling an album, you've got all these songs and you're trying to both get the songs that are going to be on the album and then order them. Are you involved in that? Like with this, because there are some really good songs that ended up being B-sides, like Feeding the Fire to the Neurotic, I'd Rather Be You, it's a really good song. Were they ever part of the album or were they always designed, oh, this will be a B-side? Oh, well, they would all be recorded at the same time pretty well and I think no they, they they would all be sort of finished and given a chance as far as I remember you are terrified. 
Jonathan, do you remember being involved in the compiling of the album and the track listing of what goes first, second? Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. I always got involved in all that side of things. In those days before, uh, well, in days rather before CDs, you you had very much two sides to think about. So there's mm-hmm. always like the, the beginning, the end of side one, how that would then you know, I, I still, if, if you're on streaming and there's a 10 track album, I always think of track five as end of side one, always. And track Do six you? is the, yeah, I still have that mentality of side one, side two, no matter what it is with streaming or a CD or anything. It's why Pink Floyd didn't allow Dark Side of the Moon to be on iTunes when iTunes first came out. Yes. They said, I don't want you to pick one song, you know. Yeah, you listen to the album or nothing at all. Yeah. Um, so can you think of any instances where it was your suggestion for the track listing, like, or or, or a, a track listing, you think they made the wrong decision, they should have done what you suggested that we would have changed? No, we would have we would have all discussed it. I mean, there's, there's all sorts of, you know, the reasons I just said, but also key the songs in can make a difference right. in how, how, it, um, how one song follows another song. Tempo, obviously, I think it's, you know, fine to finish side one within too deep don't you and then mm. and then an instrumental to finish the the album off seems good to me and you have the long songs in the middle <laughs> the thing well paced album if, if you were doing an album and you, you you had a you all had a song that you didn't think was quite sort of as good as you, know, you it had to be on the album but you didn't sort of think it was quite good you would tend to sort of want to bury it in the middle of side two <laughs> think of an example with um oh we, we talked about Mother, didn't we? The police. That's oh, well, that was, yeah. Buried inside one. Oh, Mother, dear, please listen. Don't me. That was buried inside one. one. But, but that's yeah. because the, um, I, I thought it was really, ge- well, not genius, but it was <laughs> the way that album was put together that had all the fast songs on one side. Yes, and then the slow, yeah. The slow stuff on the other side because I don't, I'm not sure if I would have thought of that at the time, but when, when it all got discussed and put together, and of course in those days you used to do a lot of trialling it out, which was much more laborious than nowadays when you're doing everything on a computer and you can, you, you can completely redo orders in a couple of minutes, whereas then it would take several hours, you know, mm. but, um, chopping tape and all that sort of thing. No, I th- I'm very happy that, that was my my last work with Genesis, and and I feel that the three albums I did with them were were all um, good albums. Yeah, and, and to me they got better. So Abacab's a good album. I think Genesis is a really good album, and Invisible Touch is a great album. So I think they, they all kind of is an yeah. upward trajectory, and probably in sales as well. So it's a good. Yes, I think so. A good trio to have. Yeah. Yeah, I think Tony Smith, the manager, was. Um, reasonably happy with me and the band. No, I mean, it was an honour to work with them. As I said before, you know, I'd followed Genesis from when I was at school and they were barely out of school. I mean, and so to end up working with not only them and Peter Gabriel on what ended up being four different albums, um, I'm extremely proud and grateful for, for sure. So there's one more thing for 86. Uh, you guess what it is? It's co-produced in 86. Oh, 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 um, Howard Jones. Yes. No, no one is playing. A fantastic version of a fantastic song. Do you have any memories of recording that with Phil? Yeah, I do, actually. I think we did it 
Did we do it in the middle of something else? I seem to remember doing it at a, on a weekend or maybe a couple of weekends or something. I actually listened to it earlier. I've been up to London and back today on the train. But when I got back, I did give it a listen. It's good. It's good. You can build a mansion, but you just can't live in. You're the fastest runner, but you're not allowed to win. So break the rules and let to count the cost. I think it was an early, well, you know, one of digital recording. It sounds on the speakers that I was listening to it quite sort of sharp in a way, if that's the right word. I don't know. Um, have you listened to it recently? Yeah, I, that's one I listen to a lot actually, because it is. I've always had a soft spot for Howard Jones. Kind of, kind of grew up with Howard Jones, really. So, and that was one of his last big hits, wasn't it? Especially in America, it was huge in America. Yeah, I mean, I think they. God, I've been listening to a few sort of things that you're going to talk to me about and I mean god we had that such a sort of well especially Phil and I sort of quite polished sort of production thing didn't we going on really and um I think they wanted us to to remake that song to make it radio friendly which we obviously did <laughs> yeah that worked big time yeah no I like yeah. I like the drumming and what he does with his harmony vocal on it as well I think it really it really adds to the song yeah I, I remember being really pleased with it at, at the time, I have to say, without meaning to blow my own trumpet or anything. But, so I just uh, took a couple of weekends to it from start to finish? I think so, yeah. It didn't take that long at all because obviously Howard knew the song. I knew Howard anyway, actually, because a very good friend of mine called Trevor Morace, who's a drummer, played with Howard for a long time. And Howard came from High Wycombe. And Trevor and I were both from this town called Amersham. And so it was all that sort of, you know, we, we'd just known each other for ages. So it was nice to do something with, with Howard and, um, and nice to do something that was as successful as, successful, it, as yeah. it was. And yeah. It is a great song, isn't it? It is a great song. Yeah, because I mean, I had the album that came from, which was in 85, which is um, Dream Into Action, like the song. But when I heard the single in 86, I thought, yeah, that's much better. It's like the, the album version is a demo and this is the proper record. Yes. Yeah. Well, another friend of mine did all the production on his um, on his other stuff. Um, Rupert, Rupert Hine, Hine. Yeah. Who sadly, died last year. Yeah, they're two great albums. Nineteen eighty-seven. Okay, so into eighty-seven. There's two albums. Sting's second album, Nothing Like the Sun. You didn't. You weren't involved with producing the first. I assume that was a scheduling thing. No, it wasn't. It was a falling out. Thing. Oh, okay. No, and, and, well, not falling out, but it was. It was. Um, it was really down to Miles Copeland, the manager. He just, he was always very odd with money and he didn't really want to pay me anything. You know, having had two pretty big albums with, with the police and my manager just insisted that we had to make a point. Miles's attitude was the more successful it was, the more money you must have made and therefore you made too much money. So we're not gonna, I'm not gonna pay you as much. It's a strange logic, isn't it? It's like it's really being... strange. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Also called greed, probably. <laughs> yeah. 
So yeah. I had nothing to do with the first solo album, and nor did I have anything to do with the recording of Nothing Like the Sun. But I think Sting did that with a guy called Neil Dorfsman, who yeah. was famous for doing um, Dire Straits, um, you know, their massive album, what was it called? Brothers in Arms. Brothers in Arms, yeah. exactly. And I don't know, I just feel, uh, sorry, Phil, not Phil, Sting rang me up and he said, I'd like you to come and mix the record. So that's what I did. Okay, because the, the credit on credit on Wiki is recording and mixing, but you're saying you were not involved in any of that. No, sort of recording yeah, I, I looked at that. I, made. I saw that and it's wrong. Yeah. I only mixed it. And it was one of the first times I worked at A&M Studios in LA and it's the most incredible studio. It was, I, I loved mixing that record. I think Sting said that he had a thing with, that Neil didn't understand the bass and I guess you know Sting being a bass player and stuff and so anyway I was very happy to reunite with Sting and then I went on to make three more solo records with him after that which I did all the way through um, you know recording and mixing and producing and stuff so it was nice to to rekindle my relationship with Sting but I do love that Nothing Like The Sun album for the most part anyway and just remember having a great time and, and I stayed at Sting's house which was up in Malibu and I was driving around in some smart open top American sports car with the FM radio going. I was like, you know, the proverbial pig in again, you know. Yeah, living the dream, eh? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that 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 was really good fun. And was, I was he more sorry, Cam. No, I just think there are some fantastic songs on that record as well. And I loved the band as well had at that time. And and the sort of, you know, he'd obviously since the, the leaving the police and, and Dream of the Blue Turtles, it was just going much more sort of in a jazzy way, wasn't it? But I, I like the uh what songs do I like? Um, Something like Fragile. Which is really well, I love Fragile, yes. I was that, that hard to mix? Because like you said before about One More Night, that sometimes the simpler songs with less on it are harder to mix. Was that one a particularly tricky one or did it kind of... Well, I remember loving that because I I just love the... I, I've got a, like a really long echo plate on, on it. It's got such a sort of... I, I love the atmosphere in it and the backing vocals. I do, I do this thing called delayed reverb where you where you put the signal through, it used to be a tape machine, but you could use a digital delay as well, and then go into the echo plate. So you get the echo is coming back a bit later than the actual main signal, and it makes it sound bigger. And um, so I use that kind of, you know, it's like a studio effect. So I use that on, on Fragile. I love that song. But my other favorite songs are Be Still My Beating Heart, and I love They Dance Alone as well. Well, I, I, I really like Englishmen in New York as well. That was good fun. If manners make a man, as someone said, he's our hero of the day. It takes a man to suffer ignorance and smile. Be yourself, no matter what they say. Yeah, they're all good songs, yeah. And Andy yes. Summers played guitar on Be Still My Beating Heart. So what was that like? 
Well, I wasn't there. <laughs> oh, of course, you weren't there. Of course, you were there for mixing. No, I, I only mixed it. So I was wondering, I don't know if it's that song of the Lazarus Heart that he plays guitar on, but I think, yes, you can't really hear him in the mix. Are you, or maybe I've not listened to it recently, but... Well, he plays on, on the Lazarus Heart, which is the first song, and Be Still My Beating Heart. But I don't know, I was listening to the Lazarus Heart the other day, which is the first track on the album. And I don't know if it was just recorded with a drum machine or there was something wrong with the drums and I put a sample on it or something, but it sounds that I hate the, the snare sample because when you do rolls on a real snare, you, you get a sort of dynamic. And if you do a, a roll or, a, or or whatever on a, on a drum machine, it just goes da, 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 da. You know, they each one's the same sort of volume and it doesn't sound very real at all. So I, I, I thought, oh gosh, that, that's not very good when I was listening to that the other day. But anyway, I can always criticise my own work, that's for sure. That's a good question, actually. When you hear it, can you hear, is it the mistakes or your perceived mistakes you hear first, or is it the good things you hear, like that bit's really great? Yeah, 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 no, yeah. definitely. I mean, there isn't an album I've ever made where I don't think I listen and sort of maybe cringe at one point <laughs> or another. But um yeah. I can also remember when we finished that record, we had to we had to rush off to New York. It was all done in well mixed in LA, and we had to rush off to New York to to master it. And it was all booked, and as usually, it was you know we were late, sort of thing. And we even got to the airport so late that we jumped on on the plane with literally myself and and Sting's roadie. I had the tapes in my hand and. Danny, the roadie, had to jump through the the queue and persuade the air hostess to keep the doors open because we weren't going to get on the plane. And so we got on the plane, literally having just left the studio, rushed to the airport, sweating like a dog. It was a night flight, I think. And our suitcases didn't get on the aircraft. So we arrived in New York. It was like a red-eye flight, ready to master the next morning. And we were absolutely sort of disgusting in, in <laughs> yesterday's clothes. And I remember going out to try and find some pants and socks, like knickers, pants and socks. Mm -hmm. So we just so we wouldn't arrive at the mastering studio all smelly. <laughs> but, yeah, it was, it was, it was, I always, I always remember that. So it's not a very good anecdote, really. But... <laughs> Just paint a picture of what it's like to make a record. It's not all yeah. just glamour and, you know, <laughs> sex, drugs and rock and roll. Yeah, well, it was all that part from the sex and the drugs, I think. So what was Sting like as a solo artist to work with compared to when he was in the police? I guess it was an advantage mixing without having Stuart Copeland drum tracks and to moan about. Yeah. No, I mean, it was a you know, completely different thing. And as, as I said, I did three more records with him in the 90s. And yeah, no, it was just, you know, it was, he was like a different person, really, <laughs> in many ways. Like, I don't remember ever having any arguments in the studios. No, I've, you know, I've always loved working with Sting and, you know, highly respect him as a, as a writer and a player. And so do other musicians. So there were always fantastic musicians in the band. So, you know, I, I, I loved making those records. But that's more of the 90s, really. Yeah, that, that trilogy you made, the three great albums. Okay, now one that falls under the uh, underrated gem department. And I'm going to you um, produce until I did my research. And that's um, Remembrance Days by the Dream Academy. 
Oh, yes. yes. Yeah. Um, it's a really great album. There's some cracking songs on it. Uh, any thoughts on that one? Yes. I think it deserved to do better than it should have done, actually. Um, having done a little bit of my homework for you, I did listen to it the other day. I think, um, personally, I find some of the synthesizer sounds, but I suppose we were the 80s, a bit sort of cheesy. But Nick's got such sort of character in his voice, hasn't he? What's the time of year just after the summer's gone? When August and September just become memories of songs To be put away with the summer clothes And packed up in the attic for another year We had decided to stay on for a few weeks more Although the season was over now The days were still warm And seemed reluctant to give up Hand over to winter for another in the You know, the strange thing is, I, we, I think we spent so long on it and I was meant to be working or going off and doing something that I ended up not mixing it after all that, having spent ages on it. I don't think I mixed hardly any of the album and I'm not sure who did, if it's on the credits or not. But yeah, I mean, making a Dream Academy album and working with Nick wasn't always a bunch of roses. And, and he would be the first to say that himself as well. And um, he could be quite difficult. I got this drummer in who, who I knew really well, who played with Peter Gabriel, especially called Jerry Marotta. And um, I remember being in the studio one day, we were all there and Nick was, this is Nick Laird clothes, by the way. Yeah. Um, clue, clues, clothes, whatever you call him. Um, or we, although we used to call him Nick Loud Clothes, um, because he used to wear quite colourful clothing as well. A bit hippieish. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, Jerry, we we were in the studio one day working on a track, and and Nick started saying, "Well, I want you to play." the toms like this and 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 he, and, he, and he gets very animated nick he's he's lovely i still see him because his his wife is a friend of my wife's from years back so i do still see him sometimes and we have a good we have a good laugh talking about it sometimes you know the recording process but anyway jerry got so annoyed at nick and nick's not that tall he's probably about i don't know five foot nine or you know something like that and jerry's like six foot one anyway i remember jerry just basically and, and nick's quite small as well for, you know small framed he just picked nick up by his by his shirt collars and had him up against the wall off the ground <laughs> saying if you tell me how how they're gonna play the fucking drums you know, it was like it was just a really funny, funny one. Yeah. So it was it was it there was always pressures and tensions and God knows what, because Nick was fighting with Gilbert, Gilbert Gabriel or Kate was, you know, they they were all quite sort of what's the word? Were they feeling the pressure of following the first album then with the, the hit single? Was that part of it? Well, I don't know. I think it, no, it was just the way they, you know, it's just the way they were. And it's a shame we didn't really have quite as good a 
hit single. I was, I, you know, because I love that song. So much, and because I'd met Nick somewhere and so on, so I, I, I was really keen to do that that album, and I was hoping that there was going to be, um, you know, the hit song um, "Life in a Northern Town," not Mark II, but another really amazing yeah. song. And I do think there are some fantastic songs on it. Anyway, I'm proud of that album, and I think they they were great. And Nick's gone on to do a lot of other interesting things. He he wrote it's film few. work, isn't he? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're talking of film. So, like, I would have first heard the music from this from um, the film Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Yeah, you're right. I talk too much. I also listen too much. I could be a cold hearted cynic like you. But I don't like to hurt people's feelings. Well, you think what you want about me. I'm not changing. I like, I like me. My wife likes me. My customers like me, because I'm the real article. What you see is what you get. And anybody oh, yes. who's seen that film will know no power to believe. Did you ever see that film, with Steve yes, Martin? Yes, I did. Yes, yes, and I did. Did you know the song was in it when you saw the film? Um, I can't remember to be honest. Because it's used so well in the film. Did the film come out afterwards. Well, the film would have come out. Yes, the film came out. I think in '88. This is yeah. almost in '87. So yeah. Um, what's his name? The manager of the group. You know the guy who who directed the film. John Hughes. John Hughes. Well, the guy who managed the Dream Academy. Tarquin Gotch, that's his name. He had sort of moved to LA and got involved with John Hughes and produced or co-produced some of those, several of those John Hughes films. And that was how the connection happened. It sounds so simple, but it's just such a beautiful track. Yeah, it is, isn't it? So you said you've, you're aware, you're not aware, or you weren't aware when that when album was a massive success. Were you aware when it didn't connect? Was that ever relayed back to you when, a, when an album had like not sold and you had hopes for it and just, just didn't connect with an audience? What, are you talking about the Dream Academy especially? Yeah, yeah. Because obviously like something like David Bowie and Human League may underperform, but it's still, you know, the single's still getting the charts, still charts in the top 10. Whereas with an album that's kind of, doesn't really have an impact at all, that should have done. Yeah, Are you aware of that at the time. Well, I, I, I think I was aware of it, and uh, and I would have been, you know, disappointed for for them and disappointed for myself because at that time, as we discussed in one of our earlier chats, you know, one one was used to having <laughs> success, which is mm. which is a, a bit arrogant, really, isn't it, to say that? But I I suppose they were always regarded as being a one-hit wonder band, really, weren't yes. they? Whereas yes. most most of the because other they, yeah. acts that I was 
working with at that time had sort of you know quite long careers but I don't I you know personally I don't think the Dream Academy were a one-hit wonder album but that, that's how it goes down in history in a way yeah that is the perception sorry just the other thing yeah. about the Dream Academy is that Kate was in a band called the Ravishing Beauties yes with Nikki Holland Nikki Holland yes then you've got the Nikki Holland Tears for Fears connection uh, my younger sister was great friends with Nikki so we kind of all knew each other in a way do you see what I mean yeah I haven't seen Kate for a long time actually but she was a fantastic player as well really great wind and sax and stuff like that when you have someone that plays an instrument like that is there the pressure then that they have to be used on every track you have to find a role for them in each song even if the song doesn't quite fit it or was it okay that she would only be on certain tracks oh well she was dead cool because I don't think she's all over the album at all yeah um, actually, and I think what is there is very tasteful. But she sings backing vocals yeah, as well. Yeah, so she is on pretty much every so track she, anyway. She is, yeah. You know, she is involved. But yeah, I, I agree. I mean, if you only play the oboe or something, you know, it is going to be a bit weird if you have oboe on every single song, isn't it? Well, that's the problem when you have a saxophone player in a band, is like you're going to have to hear the saxophone solo on every track. That's, <laughs> and a little bit of sax can go a long way. Actually, there's a band I did in the 80s, which I don't think you you may not have heard of, but you may have, but it sort of disappeared without trace. They were called uh, Mummy Calls. Oh, yes, it is. I I haven't haven't checked those out. Are they any good? Well, that only reminds me of it because they had a sax player and he was a great sax player. And I saw the band live and they were signed to Geffen Records, quite a big deal. And he literally clammed up in the studio and he just couldn't play the sax in the studio it was just a disastrous record and it didn't really do anything did you get somebody in and to play the sax parts on the record no it just took ages to get him to play and 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 editing it and you know doing loads of takes and then you know bouncing takes together a bit like how you would do vocal compilations and it was just it was like pulling teeth out it really was was, I felt so sorry for the poor guy because he was a good player but he just panicked in the studio and it was awful is that quite common that well luckily for me it wasn't very common but I mean it it is a um a syndrome that is that is known I mean used we used to call it the red light fever in other words in the old-fashioned recording studios you'd put a red light on so when you were recording because um you didn't want people to walk in the studio or something I'm talking more like Abbey Road orchestral things but we did used to, you know, most studios in those days did have a red light and there was a, usually a button on the desk that turned it on. But um, that that's what we used to call it, red light fever. Go in the studio, oh, a bit of red light fever, eh? You know, <laughs> eh, eh, eh? <laughs> yeah, musicians. I mean, it's, it's, it's a really big thing for a producer to, you know, part of producer's job, in, as far as I'm concerned, was always... The, the, the fact that trying to get a performance out of an artist in a studio where there's probably not very many people wearing headphones, which is completely the antithesis of being on, on a stage live where you've mm. got loads of people in front of you and singing into a, into a microphone with possibly a, a you know monitor in front of you or whatever. So I think um, sometimes it does take people a while to get used to the studio. I mean, I've worked with plenty of singers who have uh, been unaccustomed to singing in the studio. 
uh, and the classic one is singing slightly off pitch. And usually the way to get round that was because they were had both headphones on both ears. You can't really hear yourself other than what's being put back into the headphones for you. So the way to get around that was usually to have one of your ears with the headphone half off so you could hear yourself live in real life rather than just through the headphones. And with so, most singers you worked with use that approach? More a lot of them that. did, yes. Yeah. A lot of them did. And um, that's something that you can only you know, learn or be taught uh, as, as a sort of studio technique. Sure. But I think, uh, like I said a second ago, you know, it was a half of a producer's job, in my opinion, is, is being um, how good you are as a diplomat. That was going to be another question. How much of it do you need to be like a friend, a shoulder to cry on, a psychiatrist, sometimes the stern teacher saying, oh, come on, boys. You know, how much of it is, is beyond just the technical and the musical? Well, yeah, a lot of it is, and um, uh, with, with the exception of the police, who just used to tell me to piss <laughs> off. <laughs> <laughs> if they're in a good mood, otherwise it's fuck off. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but um, yeah, for sure. You know, if if someone's thinking they're not doing very well, being able to encourage them, even if you agree they're not doing very well, you must try and sort of encourage to get better performance out or, or whatever. You know, there's so many aspects to it. We just, you know, that would be a whole show on its own, really. Yeah, I can imagine, yeah. 1988. So there's the two eponymous albums I mentioned for 88, Julia Fordham's and Brian Wilson's. Yes. Um, you produced Julia Fordham's, is that correct? Well, no, the first album, I did some songs, but I mixed most of it. You did a couple of albums with her, didn't you? I did. I, well, I did. Um, didn't I do bits in th- of three albums? Maybe I didn't. Maybe I just did. The- My great friend. No, I didn't do anything on the third album. <laughs> I've done so many bloody albums with everyone. It's, <laughs> it's amazing. Look at an album and not know if you've done anything because you've done yeah, so much. No, her stuff. third album was called Sweat, Sweat and I didn't yeah. have anything to do with that. So I mainly mixed the first one, which has Happy Ever After. You could say. and Bill Padley did most of it. I was great friends with Julia's manager, who was an old, literally from when I used to be at school. One of my mates at, at school's sister was with, who ended up being a great friend of mine called Jasmine Danes. And she worked at Polygram and then she went off to manage artists. And the first artist she managed was Julia. And that's how... I got involved with Julia. So she asked me if I would be get involved with mixing because Grant and Bill were were great and Grant's an amazing 
keyboard player and Bill did the sort of engineering on it, but he wasn't very experienced mixing. So they, they got me into into mix it. And I did a couple of the songs, funny enough, in New York with the most amazing band that was basically the same lot as was um, in David Bowie's band. In other words, Omar Hakim, Tony Levin bass from Peter's album and who I've met from Peter and Carlos Alomar on guitar. And it's quite a band, isn't it? For your yeah, first and a album. few other guys. Robbie Condor is an amazing keyboard player. We did Comfort of Strangers and Woman of the 80s, I think it was. So the most of it I just mixed. Oh, and that's also where I met Dominic Miller, who's played a lot of guitar on Julia's recordings. And I'd never met him and I was mixing away and I said, oh gosh, these, some of these guitar things are amazing. Who is that? So I eventually met Dominic and a couple of years later, when Sting was looking for a new guitar player, I suggested Dominic. So you got him into the Sting fold then. No, I got him into the Is he Sting still with Sting? Because he's been with him, he was with him for a long time, wasn't he? Yeah. Well he yeah. still is. I mean he's still know, there, yeah. years later and he's never said thank you to me either. Because <laughs> he's like the Sting what Dal Sturmer is to Phil Collins in Genesis. The I know, but always... I tell you what, well, that's quite a funny story when we get on to that seriously. But back to Julia Fordham, is there a difference recording or mixing female voices? No, no, there's no difference of, of mixing different people's voices because everyone's voice is different anyway, isn't it? I mean, Julia had quite a sort of, um, she has, you know, well, different ways of singing, but her voice was always quite sort of low, really, isn't it? It's quite it? deep, isn't it? Yeah. yeah quite deep. The, yeah. So, so I think each one you take as it comes and you think, well, will that mic work better than that microphone? And, and you try things out or, or guess things. And as, as you get to know somebody better, you realise what sounds better, you know, what mics might sound better and that sort of thing. But no, I don't think I've, well, I've never really sort of thought about that question, to be honest. But Julia was such a professional, you know, even when she was just starting out, um, she was just always sang totally in tune she knew what she wanted to do uh, I don't know I just I, I loved working with her and um, she's lived in America for years now so I haven't seen her much recently but whenever she she still used to come back to England and and do the old concert and stuff so whenever she was back I did see her and same when I was in LA I'd go and She's very English, and it's so odd that she's ended up living in LA because what you do with Julia is you have a nice cup of tea. Does <laughs> <laughs> she use tea bags or tea leaves, and is the milk in first or last? You use tea leaves if you can, and I'm probably very uncouth, but I think you put the milk in afterwards. Mm. So there's three more things to cover, which is yep. um, the Brian Wilson, his first solo album, which came out in 88, which you mixed. Did you mix the whole album and how did that come about? I mixed um, virtually the whole album, but I didn't mix the 
Oh my God, I've got so many stories about Brian Wilson. So did you mix it with him? Was he there with yeah, you? Yeah, 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 it was. i tell you how I got involved in it. I was in New York one day and I was in Warner Brothers offices having a meeting with somebody and Russ Titleman, who produced um, a lot of the album, was had an office because he lived in New York at that point and he had an office there and he someone said that I was there and he he just came and knocked on the door and he said um oh I'd love to meet you will you will you pop in um and see me on on your way out so I said yeah sure so I went and after I'd finished my other meeting I went and we had a great time chatting because I loved a lot of stuff. Do you, do you know who Russ Titleman is? Mm, yeah. yeah. I mean, he had done, he, around the time we did Face Value, he did Steve Winwood's um, Ark of a Diver album, which I was always a big, a big fan of. Anyway, th- at the end of this meeting, he said, look, I'm in the middle of making this record with Brian Wilson. Do you, do you fancy mixing it? And I said, God, yeah, sure. And um, I, you, I loved mixing records as well because you didn't have all the pain of the record. Yeah, you've got the end result there to play around with. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, I wanted to be sort of like Bob Clearmountain in a way who had become mm. um, really well known for his mixing, although he chucked away all the producing. I, I just wanted to do both. I loved doing both. But it was really nice because you could mix a, a, a record in a couple of weeks, three weeks or something, whereas you're talking three months to make a, a, an album at least. Yeah, so I ended up mixing it in LA at A&M Studios. So that's a few weeks later, there I am mixing it. And the first day, Brian comes down. And well, I just remember I was listening to one of the songs and you've got all your faders in front of you. And he came and sat down at the desk and was being friendly. But he wasn't quite, you could tell he wasn't sort of quite normal yeah and then used to have like faders that you have your echo plate returns come down and and so you have you know special faders for that he he said let's can we listen to the song so I'm playing down the song to him and he suddenly takes these two faders these echo plate faders in his in his fingers and just pushes them up so everything it like nearly blew my speakers up and it was just the echo coming back and so it was the most it was it was really quite sort of it doesn't sound very funny but for me it was it was like everybody in the room because it just suddenly went so loud and and all just echo and And did you you subtly turn him back down or do you just let him have his fun until oh no we had to stop the tape i think and everything and just sort of and russ said politely to brian do you mind you know don't please don't don't do that again (laughs) don't do that but i think i mixed everything on the album apart from rio grande the long track which is the long track which is a really good track and um, Lenny Warrenker, you know who I mean by Lenny? Yeah, yeah. Well, he sort of produced that track. I don't know whether he produced... I think it was mostly Russ who did all the other tracks. Yeah, um, he did most of Side 1 and then Side 2 as Lenny Warrenker and Dee Paley and Jeff Lynn did a track as well. 
But I I seem to remember mixing Nighttime and Let It Shine as well. And I mixed all of the first side of the album, I'm pretty sure. You mix Love and Mercy, the first track. Yeah. That's an amazing song, isn't it? Yeah. When you were mixing it, did you how many times did you just want to just push the faders down on all the instruments and just have the vocals? Did you ever do that and just have like an a cappella version of just Brian Wilson's voice? Yeah, I mean, sometimes we probably I probably did, yeah. I mean, when you're balancing up vocals and things, you'd do that anyway. I was sitting in a crummy with my hands on my I mean, it was it was really it was odd. I mean, Brian wasn't there all the time, mm. and he was still being managed by this guy called yeah. Eugene Landy. Yeah, Doctor Landy. I was going to ask about that. Was yeah. he hanging around the studio as well? Did you know? Well, he didn't know. He up? didn't used to come very often. But what happened was, we had this guy who was a young guy who we called the Surf Nazi because he was basically. <laughs> Eugene Landy's plant who was there ostensibly to look after Brian but he was he was Dr Landy's spy and what happened and I'm not kidding you that that the surf Nazi would make notes and then it was only after a few days or the first week that he re we realized that he was going out and I mean, this is before mobile phones and things. He was going out and calling Dr. Landy and telling him that we were, you know, we, we were doing things like saying, Brian, why are you taking all these pills? Because he was, he was literally under the spell of, of Landy and he was taking, I don't know what they were. I mean, things like Valium, I suppose, just to keep him down and um or or not probably valium more like beta blockers so anyway then landy would ring up russ and go crazy at russ and then we we would go that there was uh, all, each of the studios at AM had their own little you know what you used to call green room or rec room where you could go and eat your sandwiches and food and and one day we went up to have a cup of coffee and a, and a chat because I think we wanted to chat not in front of the surf Nazi and the surf Nazi wrote down in his book because we used to spy on his book if he went out sometimes and he and he and he said uh, Russ and Hugh have gone upstairs to smoke a joint which was completely untrue and then Landy would ring up and start going crazy at us and then on the first or second day, Brian came in and 
in the in the control room were these like big thermos flasks full of coffee and Brian realized this and he was obviously not allowed to drink coffee or any sort of stimulant because we're we're working in there and suddenly Brian literally shoots out of his chair and goes straight to this thermos flask behind which was behind the console pushes down on the lever on it into a into a cup and 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 is like swallowing this coffee before anybody told him not to i didn't realize that he wasn't meant to be drinking coffee or tea or or, or whatever and so then landy came down the studio and he made he made the assistant take all the coffee out and said, I don't want any coffee to be in the room at all while when Brian's there. And so there was uh, quite a lot of, somebody wrote a book and there's quite a lot in it about us mixing that record because I think we were interviewed for it. I can't remember who, who the author was, but it was sometimes comical, sometimes really sad and... Um, but good fun as well. So uh, I was, you know, it was a great experience. Well, to be able to work with the Beatle and the Beach Boy and one of the key ones as well, the key Beach Boy and one of the two yeah. key Beatles. That's yeah. quite amazing. So, and, the, and the other thing was Landy was trying to get his oar in by writing the lyrics, a lot of the lyrics. Well, that's, I remember when I had that album at the time, he had, co-write credits on quite a few songs which have been since rescinded haven't they because when they, they reissued have. the album they took his songwriting credits off because clearly it wasn't on the level was it did you see any examples of like him yes contributing? I, I, I i some of it i can remember scrawled lyrics and russ i think actually now looking back on it there were landy recorded lyrics and then there were, I think Russ Titleman had got Brian to write lyrics as well. And I think they had to record Landy's lyrics to keep Landy think that that was happening. And then there would be, that's right, there would be rough mixes sent over because Landy wanted to hear everything all the time. I mean, he was a ghastly person. He really mm. was. So even initially when you, it was, the, the perception was he was this doctor that's cleaning Brian Wilson out and helping him out. Year, Beach Boys manager Tom Hewlett turned to psychologist Dr. Gene Landy, who had worked with Brian before, for help. And he had a year or two to live, and he had died, and said, "We are worried that Brian Wilson is going to follow Elvis." Oh God, no! Yeah, that's what Tom said to me. He said, "We've got to do something. We can't let him just stay 300 pounds." Didn't you know that? And that was the picture initially, like he was doing this good thing and helping this guy who could have easily died from all, all his, you know, the drugs issues and so forth. Yeah. Even, even initially, you felt there was something sinister or creepy about him. Dr. Landy was sinister from, from beginning to end. And I yeah. only saw a few weeks of it. And thank God, I mean, this was well before Landy died. I think Brian managed to get rid of him. He had a fantastic, well, I think she's still his wife now who was absolutely amazing at sort of cleaning him up because Brian was just under the spell of Landy and was basically drugged up by him the whole yeah. time. Yeah, yeah. Dr. Landy just wanted Brian to be under his thumb the whole time. Yeah, that's how it seems in retrospect. Did you manage to have any um, good conversations with, um, with Brian or was it just not like that? Yeah, a little bit. 
if the surf Nazi wasn't there. But he, he at that point, he wasn't really totally compass mentis, I don't think. Yeah. I don't remember having any serious conversation particularly with him. But it's so odd because I didn't really realise till, well, I sort of did realise, but I didn't realise it was the first thing that Brian had done for a long time. I know, it's weird to think 88 was his first solo album. Yeah. Yeah. And yet he was such a, well, a household name, really, wasn't he? The Beach Boys were. So it was funny. I don't think I, I'm not sure that I even knew that he hadn't done any solo stuff before that. You can't keep up with every artist all the time when you're working. But it was a great experience. Some good songs on it. 1989. Okay, so let's move into 89. The last year we finally made it. Right, so quickly on Women in Chains, Tears of Fears. So you accompanied Phil Collins to record his drum part. The, the perception is they wanted an in the air tonight kind of drum break as the drums come in. Yeah. And um, Phil was like, well, I've done that. You know, I can't do that again because I've already done it. So yeah. do you remember anything about that session? I think it was just one session. I mean, we were talking like an afternoon And I think it was at the townhouse where they were in Studio One. We had always recorded, you know, the In the Air Tonight stuff. We always used to use Studio Two because that that was the one that had the stone room. Pretty sure we set the drums up and recorded it in in Studio One, which was fine. But I I don't really remember much about it because it was really just one afternoon. And I think because they were obsessive about stuff that they edited it all around afterwards anyway I think and were you there because you just happened to be with him at the time or did he want you there to help with the drum sound I mean what was oh no they wanted me to to record it with Phil so they asked me as well as him but we knew you know we I knew them quite well by that time anyway just because of them being studio one and I was in studio two be interesting what would have happened if you'd have produced it if they got together with you eight 86, 87, because the album took four years. They worked through various producers, could never quite get it get it right. And I wondered if, if you'd have produced that, what your approach would have been. I don't think I would have lasted, um, you know, very long at all. Why? Well, because I don't know, really. I mean, well, first of all, I don't think anyone wants to take four years to make a record. If, if only Phil Collins had been their drummer permanently, they'd have made three albums in that time, wouldn't they? That's yes. Yeah, I mean, There's we... no way Phil was going to spend four years on one album. No, we didn't take very long to make records, really. Okay, so stay stay on with Phil with But Seriously, his fourth album of the 80s that you produced. Can you rank your Phil Collins 80s albums from least favourite to favourite? On the spot right now. Well, my favourite is Face Value still. You want me to rank the four of them? Yes. Oh, I think it's probably... Oh... Well, face value I know is my favourite, and my least favourite isn't one of those four, which was "Dance into the Light" is my least yeah. favourite. Yeah. But I suppose that doesn't count, does it? No. Okay, so favourite is face value. I think. Do you know? I almost think my second favourite is "But Seriously." Weirdly enough. And then my third one would be, I think, the second album. And Hello, I Must Be Going. And then I think, so the, the next one has to be No Jacket Required, doesn't it? 
That's your least favorite. Oh, hang on. Yeah. No, probably. Yeah. Uh, oh. <laughs> so you're saying face value first, but seriously second. Hello, I must be going third. No jacket required fourth. Oh, no, sorry. No jacket required third. And then, hello, I must be going. Okay, third. avoids relegation at the last moment. You know, that's a horrible question to ask me. But you're and saying, I, you know, you like them more as least favorite. It's not say which is the worst, it's just the least favorite. Yeah. It's, it's, so why, why would you put that seriously second season? We're talking about it anyway. What do you particularly like about that? Album? Well, first of all, I won two Grammys with it. Oh, that, that will help me, won't it? <laughs> Secondly, I think it, it's, how can I put it? I think it's an ultimate, and, and, and again, I don't mean to blowing my own trumpet. I think it's an ultimate 80s production. I think it's well produced by Phil and myself. We were at the sort of pinnacle of our relationship I think I think some of the songs are great I think it's it sounds good sonically and he's back playing the drums more on it there's less drum machine and less sort of cheesy 80s synths I think was that a conscious decision partly I think yeah I think it was partly but it's also probably the the most polished so people who don't like Phil Collins would probably think it's their worst one in a way, if you know what I mean. Yeah, because I think Phil Collins of the Phil Collins. Yeah, because I think it's all very sort of, you know, it is quite sort of, I think, well produced. I, which is one reason why it sounds quite good, I think, from purely a sound engineer point of view. It doesn't have any crap going on that doesn't need to be there. So therefore you can hear what's going on. And I think we were very careful to do that and then also I was keen on it because we mentioned Dominic Miller before I was really after the third album No Jacket Required I was a bit bored of always using the same people uh, playing on it I'm not just talking about the horn sections but I I particularly I thought that Daryl Sturmer although he's a fantastic guitar player has a very sort of just it's got a style that sounds that always sounds the same to me. Yeah, and yeah. I just I really wanted to have a have a change of personnel, and it was quite difficult, if I remember rightly, to get Phil to a, agree to have Dominic come down because I think it was still before Dominic was it before Dominic joined Sting? I think it yeah, was. Yeah, because I assume Soul Cages was the first one that came out in 91, didn't it? Yes, so, yes, that's true. So yeah. so I basically had worked with Dominic on, on Julia, and I just thought he was just a fantastic guitar player, which I still think he's one of the best guitar players ever. And he's just great at all genres. So I was really, really happy that we managed to get some other people to come and play on it. So uh, Lee Sklar played the bass on on quite a few of the tracks. And, well, we had Steve Winwood play Hammond Organ on just one song and Clapton played on one song.
and also I think we were quite confident. I remember when we were mixing it, often you do different mixes. So you might do a mix with more vocals or more backing vocals. So you had to like different mixes and often the record company would say, oh, can we have a vocal up mix? And then you do a, a mix with no vocals at all for, so that, you know, you could, um, if, if, if they were doing Top of the Pops where you, sang live over the backing track or something you know so that sort of thing we we decided that we were so happy with the mixes that we'd done that we were just going to give the record company one mix and if they asked for a vocal up mix we would just give them exactly the same mix and just <laughs> say vocal up on the on the tape box and um it's quite sort of um arrogant of us to say that really wasn't it to do that rather but i guess you know it's going to be a hit there's so, no way after No Jacket Required, Invisible Touch and having, you know, Another Day in Paradise and I Wish It Would Rain Down. There's no way it's not going to be a hit. Yeah, I was pretty keen on Another Day in Paradise as well. Although I think Phil got... Um, he got a lot of slack for that. Did you ever think about, do you ever, I mean, in general, do you ever think about the lyrics? Do you ever need to know what the lyrics are well, about when you mix or record a song. Particular instance, did you have a little bit about lyrics saying, you know, you might get some crap from this from the critics for writing about the homeless and the perception of being this rich millionaire? Well, yes, I did actually think that on that song. And I wasn't that keen on the video, to be honest, but, you know, the video's made way after you've made the song. Yeah. I, I can be quite impervious, if that's the right word, to lyrics. If I don't really like them too much i can sort of almost not listen to them i know that's a weird thing to say and um i chose to sort of i could see that phil was going to get stick for that uh, you know he'd already had stick for sort of divorcing his wife supposedly by facts and all that sort of thing yeah that's what i mean by perception because well, it, it, it was a bit but i think as i said to you in our earlier episode i didn't feel it was for me to say i think you should completely rewrite the lyrics with a completely different subject over that song because it just doesn't really work like that phil much more so than genesis well totally much more so than genesis would often write the lyrics with the songs and so you know you're just not gonna you know you're not gonna go down that that street really and if nobody else is saying anything either like oh this is too embarrassing or something maybe i'm not assertive enough but hey it still was number one yeah still a big hit colors do you think that's the nearest phil collins got to doing a genesis song as a solo artist do you think that was the idea because it does have that feel of it. it's like it's a nine minute track it's in two parts it does is if you had to say name a phil collins song it's most like a genesis song i probably would say colors Yes, I suppose it is really, isn't it? Yeah. That was never discussed like, oh, this is like a, like a Genesis track. 
Well, I can't remember to be honest. <laughs> okay, I move on. All of my life was that his? Is that because that was about his dad? Was that his take on the living years, Mike and the Mechanics? Because that was massive hit in '88. Now it was about the death of Mike Rutherford's dad. Yeah, and would that have been a conversation at the time? Like, yeah, you both heard that song, and it's like obviously he's going to be inspired by that and do his version. To be quite honest, I can't really remember. I'm going to play a bit. As much lyrically as musically, if not more lyrically. It just feels very much like his living years. It does really, doesn't it? Yeah. I never really yeah. thought about it like that before. I wasn't there that morning When my father passed away I didn't get to tell him All the things I had to say You know, we didn't, I think I said once before that all the records I made with Phil, which, you know, I really enjoyed making, we never really sort of socialised. So I don't remember particularly sort of having deep conversations about lyrics and things. And the way Phil worked was very sort of workaholically, as as he would be the first to admit, yeah. and as you probably know as well. And it would be come on, I'm going to sing all of my life this afternoon. And he would sing it four times. So there would be one run through to get everything right, which would often be a good take, you know, and he'd want to get his headphone balanced. And then we'd do three more tracks. You know, he'd sing it three more times. And then we would sit down together, write all the lyrics out on a piece of paper with rows. So we'd have the, the lyrics written on the piece of paper, then we'd have vertical rows with one, two, three, four. And we'd go through and listen to the verse and we'd go, we'd listen to each four, several lines or possibly the whole verse at a time. And we would mark it and he would have his marks and I would have my marks and we would agree or disagree which of the four takes was the best for each line. Do you see what I mean? We'd have little ticks and okay. crosses and half ticks. And so we'd compile a vocal like that. Say a song was like all of my life, five odd minutes long. It would take five times four, which is 20 minutes. So say half an hour to sing it, probably maybe near an hour by the time you've wound back the tape each time and all that and then it so it take maybe an hour at the most to sing it and then probably four or five hours to compile the best out of those four takes and so it was like doing a job do you see what I mean mm. I mean we might sit there and go oh well that line you know your expression in that line is is really reflects the hurt of the lyric <laughs> or something like that but I don't remember ever particularly sitting down and saying well 
was this about your father or your mother or your, you know, whatever, or is this relating to Mike or anything like that? We, we weren't very sort of, what's the word? Analytical, I guess you're too no, busy. No, yeah. we weren't really. And it was like, Phil, all he wanted to do was get the thing done, you know? Yeah. And so it was, it was quite sort of jobby in that sense. And, you know, like Phil would turn up in the studio at 10 o'clock in the morning and we would have lunch, which would be half an hour or 40 minutes. And he was always the first one back in the studio. And, it, and then we would have supper at sort of seven or something. And, it, you know, sometimes your brain needs to take a break. Phil, it was always like... If, if you know he, at the very most he'd sort of let us have an hour when I say us meaning the assist my assistant as well or something it'd be like come on back in the studio let's yeah. get on with it let's get on with it so we I wasn't very sort of I'm talking you know lyrically here I mean we always you know got on incredibly well in terms of music and and, and the production side of it but it, it was quite sort of mechanical in a, in a, in a way but it, it was obviously a formula that worked. Yeah, the end justifies the means. That's probably the biggest selling album, certainly in the UK, because it spent 15 weeks at number one in the UK, which is insane. You're third, kidding. Did it really? Third, yeah, it was the third best-selling album of 89 and the best-selling album of 1990, My which is God. weird. And even even bigger than that, it's Germany's, I don't know if it still is, but it used to be Germany's second best-selling album in the chart history of certified albums of all time. Did it really? Yeah. Well, when I when I look on the Wikipedia and it's got the charts down the world, yeah, it's just one everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Apart from Italy, where it says peak position sixty two. <laughs> but it's so weird because the Italians, the Italians love Genesis. Uh, yeah, maybe that's what it is. Then he ruined. Uh, they're like early Genesis or late Genesis, though. Because if it's early Genesis, they probably still resent him for it for the the, the poppified. Later years. I don't know. It's weird, yeah. isn't it? So it, it's a perfect book into the, the decade because like your first album as producer was Face Valley, which you made in 1980. And then the fourth one is 89. Yeah. So what was the biggest change you noticed in Phil Collins uh, between the first and the last album of the 80s? Well, I think in a nutshell, the first album, Face Value, he was what I would call a muso who, who had written his songs and was going to sing them even though he'd sung with Genesis for years so he obviously was you know he was a singer but that album was like we wanted to make it with musicians that we wanted to have it was a muso album that's what we wanted it to be we didn't Mm -hmm. by the time we got to but seriously he was a fully fledged pop star you know that all the songs were much more commercial weren't they he he'd become a pop star and kind of like a film not a film star but you know he was into acting he was into doing everything so the first album was like a, a muso type album and the and the fourth one had become uh, a a real sort of commercial album and 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 he was you know a fully fledged pop star and that's why I still like Face Value as, as, as my, my favourite album in, in terms of sort of musical integrity. But I'm very, very proud of But Seriously, and I hadn't forgotten that it had been so successful until you reminded yes, me. Yes, I didn't realise it was that successful, but it was enormous in the UK and in Europe and yeah. big in, in the US. Um, well, you should be proud. You should be proud of your entire career. 
but I mean, the eighties are just insane. I, I just, just researching it. There was what I thought I knew, which was huge anyway. And then it was all this other stuff as well. And it's one hell of a career. And I hope, I hope you are proud of your career. because It's been absolutely fantastic. Well, thank you very much. And, and thank you for doing this. Cause it's been, you know, I don't know how many hours we've covered now, but it's just been uh, phenomenal. And thank you so much well, for doing it, you. For me, it's been a real pleasure. And I know we've talked for a long time, probably longer than we thought, but it's a real, been a real pleasure for me because I'm not usually very sentimental or nostalgic, but going back and going over all this stuff and seeing the list that you made that I sort of, how we've been talking about stuff. I mean, I'm just, it's been so lovely to go back and remember it all because it, it was a fantastic um, even though I'm saying that myself, it, it was a great decade for me. And um, obviously I went on in the 90s and, and, and even 2000s to, to do other stuff, which, which I, I enjoyed and, and proud of as well. But it is incredible that I managed to fit all that stuff in to a decade. This is the end of the interview. Thank you very much. So that's finally the end of the road of Hugh's 80sography. Massive thanks. In fact, huge thanks. See what I did there? To Hugh for doing the interview. Open parenthesis. Zzz, close parenthesis. A very engaging guy to speak to. Incredibly friendly and funny. Uh, the time went so quickly. We chatted for over seven hours. And there's so much I feel like we just briefly touched upon. I could have done an hour on synchronicity I could have done an hour on press to play I could have done an hour on bowie I could have done an hour on etc etc uh, and what a career what a decade and I, I seriously don't think there's another producer in the 80s who was responsible for more hits than Hugh Padgham possibly Stockick and Waterman but in terms of songs that have lasted that resonate that really you know songs like In the Air Tonight and Every Breath You Take that just so iconic I don't think there's anybody that can touch him really so thank you to Hugh and also thank you to Joe who helped set it up I have at least uh, three more recorded for the My Itisography series. All music producers that I got lined up that have been done. So I just need to start editing. I'm very excited to get them to you. And they should be out in, in one or at most two parts. They should be only four part series. It seems like a good place to start because it's so epic and it's such an amazing career. And then we'll start looking beyond for, for new interviews. Oh, actually, Hugh did mention that he still plays tennis with Peter Gabriel, didn't he? So, hey, Hugh, if you're listening to this, you ever hear this? Uh, put in a word to Pete, will you? It's not like he's rushing to finish an album. 19 years and counting. So tell him to get in contact and we'll have a chat through his 80s. And I promise it won't be won't be seven hours long, the chat. So yeah, so that'll be coming soon. And there's another two Sophia's episode I've got to do first. And then we'll be cracking on with the next guest for my 80s. And we'll finish with this beautiful song from a massively unappreciated gem of an LP. At the LP Remembrance Days, this is the Dream Academy of Power to Believe. And remember... Those aren't pillows.
I'm Hugh Padgham and this is my 80sography. Do I say 80sography or 80sography? 80sography is one word. It's okay, like a 80s. filmography, discography. It's all 80sography. Okay, yeah, that's that's yeah. it's obvious. Play the game of happiness and never let on that it only lives on in a song. Done. Oh, come on, I like that.